This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, a podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. In this episode, Kent Clymer and I talk to Jovan Chavoski, and we explore some of the fascinating Cold War connections between Tito's Yugoslavia and Burma. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me is uh, Dr. Kenton Clymer and another special guest that I'm going to let Kenton introduce. Thanks, Eric. I'd like to introduce Dr. Hofan Kovaski. He is a researcher at the Institute for Recent History of Serbia in Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, uh, He uh, completed his dissertation, uh, I mean his PhD at... uh, King University in Diplomacy and Diplomatic History from the School of International Studies. Uh, what is particularly impressive is that uh, he uh, is, of course, a Serbian, but he uh, did his dissertation in Chinese, wrote it in Chinese, and defended it in uh, Chinese, and uh, furthermore won the award uh, that year for the best uh, dissertation. Congratulations. Uh, first Thank time you that was uh, given to, to a foreign student. Uh, his research focuses on the Cold War in the Third World especially on the rise and evolution of the concept of neutralism and non-alignment in world affairs. He's the author of uh, two books, uh, dealing with the first one, Yugoslavia and the Sino-Indian Conflict, 1959 to 1962, uh, and the second one, Distant Countries, Close Allies, Joseph Tito, Jawaharlal Nehru, and the Rise of Global Non-Alignment. Uh, recently, he's turned his attention to uh, Burma, um, and... Uh, He's going to speak uh, with us today about uh, Burma's, uh, the history of Burma's foreign relations. Yeah, so welcome, Jovan. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks for, for coming. Me here. So, uh, y- your presentation to us, uh, the official title was 1954-55, The Apex of Burma's Non-Aligned Foreign Policy in Post-Colonial States. Now, of course, you, you study um, many parts of uh, kind of global non-alignment, uh, among other topics, but uh, you've turned your attention to uh, to Burma, but give us a sense for the non-historian, non-specialist, a context and a setting for the world that post-colonial Burma finds itself in. Yeah, so uh, the moment when Burma gains independence in January 1948 is a very even traumatic experience for, for independent Burma, because at the same time it started, uh, as a young country, it started facing serious internal challenges coming from different political or ethnic factors. At the same time, it found itself really at the crossroads of international politics in Southeast Asia in general, in, in Asia in general. So this country tried to, in a way, forge a new unity internally, trying to survive or, and overcome any internal divisions, but at the same time, it, uh, it attempted to find its own way of development and in a way, uh, its own way of action on in the international stage uh, during these early Cold War years. So uh, Burma was not only facing problems with its former uh, colonial masters like the British or uh, with the US who were trying to, in a way, forge new unity for Asia to uh, face the, the communist challenge com- coming from the Soviet Union and China. But at the same time, historically, Uh, Burma was trying to balance or rebalance its own relationship with its two enormous neighbors like India and China, two countries that have influenced Burma's history for for centuries and still influence uh, its internal and external developments until today. So that's why this was uh, one of the pioneer countries together with India and with Indonesia 
the pioneer countries of non-alignment in Asia, countries that were seeking to find its own way of development after gaining independence, but at the same time trying to stay uh, away from any bloc affiliation or military political alliances, and trying to, in a way... To not, be, to not be lured by the Soviets or lured or by the Americans. Because, exactly, to, or to stay aloof uh, yeah. from any bloc divisions and everything else, because they considered that any kind of bloc influence or great power influence was, in a way, repetition of a very traumatic historical right. in, uh, experience of colonialism. It, it seems a simple But in a, more, yeah. in a new, more yeah. perfidious way. Like just, just having simple control over your own sovereignty... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that was the basic idea. Of, of course, some of these countries were more successful, some less, less successful, but the idea was to control your own destiny as much as you can, even though you're a small player in a big power game uh, of international relations at that time. And your, your work and, and research, part of that brings in, um, of course, Yugoslavia, but maybe talk to us about uh, the, the, the non-aligned movement is, uh, is an idea that, is, that emerges as a way to, to exist outside of the, the great powers influence. So um, in, in a nutshell, how does the non-aligned movement work and what is so it? So I, I can say that at first we have a non-aligned foreign policy strategy or neutralism as it was called uh, the, the, during Be those Before years. the non-aligned movement. Yeah, yeah, so the movement in a way becomes really a movement in 1970. So it is a movement in 1970, 1980s, exists of course until today. Only recently we had another of the of the non-aligned summits. So but those, of course those conferences are, are, are precursor. Uh, yeah. yeah, are precursor. There's a precursor, and you can see that this kind of a concept is developing separately in different regions around the world. And of yeah. course, with uh, international politics becoming more and more, let's say, difficult or diverse, these countries tr uh, are starting to rediscover each other. And starting to understand that there are so many small or medium powers or smaller countries that are trying to stay away from the big power politics, but the same and at the same time trying to balance relations with both blocs, and also at the same time uh, trying to find its own way of internal socio-economic development. So in Asia, you have countries like India, Burma, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Cambodia. Later on. Of course, in, U in Europe, that's Yugoslavia. Some neutral countries like Austria, Finland, which are close to the non-aligned, but they are not truly non-aligned. For example, Egypt among the Arab countries and some other also African nations later on, like Guinea, Ghana, etc. So these countries uh, start, their setting point is in a way completely uh, different, but the, the end is in a way almost the same for all of them. They find this point of convergence of interest at one particular moment, understanding that block divisions and, and the possibility of a major international conflict could in way endanger the very existence right. of small countries in international relations. Kenton, what do you think the, what does the U.S. think about an idea of a, of a non-aligned or the idea that uh, a state would choose to be outside of well, its orbit? In general, I would say that the United States was very suspicious of that and resisted it. And uh, of course, John Foster Dulles made his famous comment about neutralism being immoral. But in practice, uh, the United States was sometimes willing to accept neutralism uh, because it was better than the alternative. Uh, oh. And so uh, the United States uh, ultimately uh, uh, accepted the neutralism in, uh, in Cambodia uh, and also in, in Burma. Um, but uh, it was always uh, a little uncomfortable with it during, during the Cold War, and of course would have preferred to have those countries more firmly on the side of the, side of the West. 
so I, I, I'm, I'm imagining these countries that they may have been governed by separate colonial states, so they might not have had a lot of uh, correspondence, correlation with each other, but post in the post-colonial world, as they compare notes, they're probably finding themselves facing very similar um, uh, influences, very similar problems, challenges, uh, and which makes this kind of all the more all the more imperative. So, what, when, how do how do Burma and Yugoslavia get together, and when they do, what what do they find about each other that 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 seem to resonate? Yes, very early Yugoslavia became, which is very surprising because these two countries never had any historical ties throughout history. Yeah. So one was in Europe, a completely a small Balkan country before that, also fragmented and divided by different European empires. And of course, Burma had its completely separate historical evolution and identity in its Asian context. But these two countries find its other, each other in a way very similar by sharing similar, uh, similar historical experience like uh, anti, let's say, colonial or and uh, anti-fascist struggle, as they consider it in the context of the Second mm -hmm. World War. But at the same time, because these were quite diverse countries with a lot of different ethnic groups, religious groups, uh, countries that were bordering great powers that were on the fringes of two, two uh, superpower blocks, they were, in a way, slowly starting to catch up on each other and finding out that there are, many, that there are much more similarities than it really meets the eye. So uh, Yugoslavia, in a way, becomes a role model for, for Burma already in 1947 for its first, first constitution. Then uh, Yugoslavia's search for a separate socialist way of development outside the Soviet. Is there a Yugoslavian way to socialism the same way there's this, you know, the famous the Burmese way to socialism? But the Burmese way to socialism was inspired by... I did uh, not know that. <laughs> yeah, by, by Yugoslavia's idea about the separate separate ways into socialism. Market mechanisms. And exactly, combining socialist yeah. planning and market <laughs> mechanisms. That was the basic of the Yugoslav <laughs> self-managed model, which in the end Tito managed to force even the Soviets to accept it as, uh, as they said, separate ways into socialism. And Burma, Burma was also part of that picture. So Burma was trying to copy its internal uh, model according to Yugoslavia, and also both countries were trying to stay away from block divisions and block affiliation, and that's how they started their cooperation. But what really became the, 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 the let's say, the turning point of the, of the Yugoslav-Burmese relationship was connected with the foreign aggression of the KMT guerrillas, Kuomintang Chinese nationalists, who came into Burma in, 19, uh, in 1950. So, so for our listeners, these are the the nationalists who, lo who, who lost to the, the, to the communists. The Chinese Civil War, they went into Burma from Yunnan right. province. It's not safe to stay in China. Exactly, so they and they are supported by Chiang Kai-shek regime in Taiwan, and also they were supported, of course, materially and in, by intelligence and, and weapons by the United States at that time. So Burma is, uh, was in a major internal strife. Uh, there were so many different groups like communists, ethnic groups like Karen, Kachin, and others, Shan fighting against the central government, and of course you did have this kind of like external influence by the KMT guerrillas. And Yugoslavia, any offensive uh, mounted by the, by the Burmese military during uh, early 1950s was unsuccessful until the very moment when, when Yugoslavia started shipping its weapons and instructors to Burma in 1953-54, after which Yugoslavia mounted, I mean, Burma mounted a couple of uh, very successful military offensives against the KMT and pushed them out. Mostly, uh, for uh, many of them, pushed them out of Burmese territory into Thailand and, and Laos. I guess it at stake uh, is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
the KMT sits in Burma, not only is their sovereignty violated, but China could decide to uh, to not tolerate this anymore and just uh, occupy Burma. Is that a real is that a real threat that Burma feels? Burma certainly felt that as a threat. I don't know if the Chinese ever had any actual ambitions to do uh -huh. that, but certainly that was used by the Burmese uh, as a reason to get the KMT out. Uh, and it was also used, incidentally, uh, as a reason why American ambassadors, all of whom dissented strongly from this policy of assistance, uh, argued that uh, we should not be supporting the KMTs. Yes, um, uh, since I did my work in the Chinese archives, you know, there was not concrete planning of any kind of invasion of Burma as the United States were afraid. I mean, the Chinese invasion of right. Burma as the United States were afraid. It would, mi it would, it might happen in the future. But they were very much worried about this influence of the KMT guerrillas on Burmese territory. And the Chinese, as I, I saw in one of the documents in 1953, offered a joint action of the Chinese and the Burmese military against the KMTs on the Burmese soil. Huh. But that was the, the, the factor that really triggered Burma's decision to get to receive Yugoslavia's weapons as soon as possible and, and mount a new offensive, not to be, get the Chinese too tempted to stage uh, a, 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 a more, uh, let's say, limited military action against the KMTs and Burmese territory. But they did, they did, uh, but they that, did come in later. Uh, that, exactly. What the with said. the invitation of the Burmese. Yeah, that was the invitation. There was a, a agreement signed by two sides that uh, the Chinese military could get into Burmese territory up to 20 kilometers, but that was signed only in 1961. So that was much later on than these years we're talking about. So it's the the these smaller non-aligned countries are f finding um, correspondences with each other. What does what what we talked a bit about China? How about how about India? And you know the, these are these are countries that are uh, like India, former colony, doesn't want to be part of the. How does it is it bosom buddies with Burma? Is it what's the what's the relationship like for? some of the other bigger Asian powers uh, with Burma in this context? Yes, India was a very close ally of Burma uh, during those years. And uh, much of the uh, foreign, foreign policy decisions made in Rangoon at that time were made in coordination with New Delhi, with Jawaharlal Nehru, the, the Indian prime minister. Is but, that a is that a colonial holdover? Do you think? Uh, yeah, of course there is part of this colonial holdover, and of course there is this uh, joint strive for independence from great power politics, which also brings them together. And of course, Burma, due to its problems with internal civil war, of course needed assistance from many of its neighbors to control its own borders. So that was also a major factor. So uh, Nehru was in a way a mentor uh, in many things to uh, Burmese Prime Minister Unu. But at the same time, of course, Burma, uh, India is also a big country. So the, the, as you can see sometimes from the Burmese internal deliberations, they, cannot, they try not to trust any of the great powers, including the big regional powers. So, and you once, also when you read some of the Indian documents, you can sometimes see that the Indian side is considered like Burmese are very close friends, but they are sometimes irresponsible. They call them responsible, childish, or something like that because they not always consult with New Delhi when they make some of the major decisions. So this was, was like a paternalism. A, yeah, there was a little bit of paternalism of a, of a big country, of course, towards a smaller country. But the foundations of this bilateral relationship in general, they were really healthy. So uh, this was a very good relationship between those, those two countries, which lasted well into the Cold War, except 
1963 when there was this problem with with the Indian national minority in Burma, which... Yeah, I wondered about that, actually. I mean, there, there is some resentment in Burma about the Indian minority there, right? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, when you say that they were, you know, very close to each other, I, I wonder if that affected, that, that the existence of those tensions affected the way in which the Burmese government dealt du with during India. During UNU era, not that much, although UNU often cl complained to Nehru in a way to influence the Indian national minority to respect... Burma's internal laws. Mm -hmm. and at the same time, uh, Nehru was also saying that all people living inside Burma, and the, which are Burmese citizens, should respect its government and its laws. And that is what also the Burmese made the Chinese Thanks Prime Minister Joan Lai also yeah. make his commitment. So that is a very interesting. The problems with the, with the Indian minority really came to the surface in 1963 when uh, there was a really... Uh, problem with Nehwing government and he was uh, closing their shops, yeah, businesses, them, kick them kicking yeah. them out of the country. Why? Because there was this perception in Burma, Burma is a strong nation nationalistic country, uh, perceived uh, uh, Indians who came with the British colonialists as part of this negative colonial past. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, like a historical shadow that was over the Indian national minority and it created certain frictions between uh, two sides and two ethnic groups, but as I said, basically this political relationship was uh, very vibrant uh, mm -hmm. and very, let's say, positive for both sides. Uh, and a, but a point your research makes is that one part of the part of the love affair between Burma and Yugoslavia is that Yugoslavia treats Burma different. Um, so maybe tell us about Tito's kind of spectacular visit to to Burma. Yes, Tito paid a visit to India and Burma in December 1954 and January 1955. Leader of Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah leader of Yugoslavia, of course. And that was the time when um, he was the very first European statesman visiting these countries after gaining independence. So it was not a statesman from any of the great powers or former colonial countries, but it was uh, a representative... It's kind of striking. Yeah, it is striking, and it was even, very Even important. the British wouldn't... No, even the, only after Tito then Anthony Eden came <laughs> after his meeting of Sato in, in February okay. 1955 in Bangkok. And John Foster Dallas also visited after that meeting Burma. And then after that, also following in Tito's trail, the Soviet leaders, Khrushchev and Bulganin also said, came to Burma. So this was only, in a way... It's at the time of the future book, Tito's Trail. Exactly. <laughs> following in Tito's trail, it was a path-breaking visit. Uh, maybe it, was say it seems strange for people now talking about these long times, but if you... Uh, do research on history as it was at that particular moment sure. in time. That was a path-breaking visit, bilaterally, regionally, and globally for the shaping of this like non-aligned nutritious alternative to great power politics uh, of those years. How did they? How did they treat Tito? Oh, they treated arrival? him very solemnly. If you read. You just you don't even have to read, for example, Burmese or Yugoslav documents. You just read the Indian documents, the Chinese, the British, the American, and they're all saying about like everything is being organized to please Tito. This visit jealousy. is very Salman. There was a little bit of jealousy, of course, because, uh, for example, Tito was greeted by the Burmese Air Force flying information of tea. Wow. The, so in a way, just to, 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 to give respect to, to their guests, then Tito gave a lot of a gift in weapons, a big for one brigade, which really made a great contribution 
for modernization of, of the Burmese armed forces at that time, where they were still fighting the and military KMT. advisors as well. Uh, there were military advisors who came to help them uh, teach them how to use these. Were they on the ground during the KMT? Uh, this is a thing we we cannot see really from documents. Probably these documents have been declassified, but there are some reports in which they say they were there. They were the only ones uh, with the Burmese military standing mm -hmm. at the front line and coordinating. So that's very interesting. So and you had throughout the 1950s and 60s. You had Yugoslav military instructors in, in Burma together with some of them from United States, Britain, Australia, and Israel. But as the Burmese would say, uh, they trusted the most are the Yugoslavs and the Israelis. The others were like representatives of great powers, so they didn't want to get them. So when, the, for example, Yugoslav military mission, first military mission came to, to Burma in uh, December 1952, as you can see even from, from the Chinese intelligence reports, they say this was the only foreign military uh, delegation that was led to visit the front line towards the KMT, the Karan, and others. So not even the British military uh, mission that was in, British service mission that was there since 1948 could not visit these spots, and the Yugoslavs were oh. there. So this was a very specific and very important uh, bilateral relationship, which was recognized by historians uh, of those years, like Hugh Tinker in his seminal history of Burma, but none of these people had any of the documents, so they really couldn't right. elaborate on this topic. Fortunately enough, today with my research, I have done a lot of it in different archives around the world. I get a much wider and, and richer perspective on Burma's foreign policy than we we used to have. Yeah, the Burmese side, the Yugoslavian side, and then the, the Indian Chinese, and Chinese. The, the Indian yeah, side, the U.S. side, the British side, the Soviet side. So the, all the kinds of these materials I have for my research. And what did the what did the U.S. think about uh, Tito's visit? I don't know specifically, but I'm sure that they thought of it in fairly negative tones, or at least very suspicious of, of what it was, uh, that they, uh, they were worried about it uh, and uh, probably were not very happy with it. Yeah, what I saw, for example, in the British and U.S. archives, they were, mm -hmm. the British were particularly trying to downplay the, re the results of this vi visit, but they were all saying the same thing, both the British and the U.S., that Tito's visit has straightened the, the neutralist bias of the, of the regime in Rangoon. Uh, so after that, there was no possibility, not a re even a remote one, of Burma joining That's a great the, phrase, the neutralist the, bias. The neutralist <laughs> bias. I'm quoting from the document. Yeah, exactly. So that there was no way for, for Burma after that to join uh, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. And that was, uh, that's why John Foster Dulles and Anthony Eden came in January, February, 1955 to try to get the Burmese joining the Seattle, but it was uh, a futile mission. So what conclusions did uh, Tito and Unu reach uh, in, uh, at the, after this meet? The, the, the major conclusion besides these bilateral issues like increasing economic mm -hmm. exchange, military cooperation, and political operation, the most important thing is that small countries should stick together, should coordinate their actions, that they should uh, make more efforts inside the United Nations, try to like make a leverage over the great power politics. And in a way, and also what's for them is to force the great powers as much as they can, of course, because they're small countries, they're weak, but as much as they can to respect them and treat them as equals. And that was that is very important for each and every of these countries, particularly with Burma. Tr e questions of equality, and, and fair treatment are psychologically very important. They were and, and probably they still are very important for the Burmese I was just going to ask, do you think those, that, that, that lingers? Yeah, I think you can see with any regime, whether it's military or now the civilian government, uh, whether it's some of the generals of Aung San Suu Kyi, 
you can see through all their actions that they are trying to gain respect and be treated as equals by their neighbors, by the regional great powers, and of course with the major powers of the world, including the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think that is very important. So non-alignment in this way or another, you can call it independent foreign policy, mm -hmm. multi-vector foreign policy, uh, multi-aligned foreign policy, as Narendra Modi is now talking about, not non-aligned, but multi-aligned or something mm -hmm. like that. It basics is, uh, is for a country, a developing country, trying to stay aloof for any grid power competition, trying to serve its own national interest, and trying to have as best relationship with any of the major factors in the world. And, of course, uh, preser uh, preserving its own independence and sovereignty. So this is the basics of any kind of non-aligned foreign policy. Was there, uh, was there any, uh, any talk about creating a non-aligned block kind of a block to counter the Ex other blocks that they're suspicious of? Yeah, that, that was a major issue. The, the non-block block? The non-block block, right. <laughs> Exactly. So uh, <laughs> neither Yugoslavia or India wanted to have a block. They wanted just to have strong cooperation, multilateral cooperation between all these diverse factors. Mm -hmm. But they were uh, people thinking about third block. So when Tito was traveling to India and Burma, mm -hmm. the British and U.S. diplomats all around the world, as you can see from, from documents I have seen, mm -hmm are talking about this, that Tito, Nehru, and UNU are setting up a third block. So that's why in their joint statements, both in New Delhi and in Rangoon, they had to clearly state that we are not seeking for a third block. We are just seeking for independent foreign policy from any kind of superpower rivalry, great power, great power domination, mm -hmm. uh, block divisions, and everything else. So, but in a way, uh, this was a political third force of the Cold War during these decades. So, so the time, it seems like this very exciting moment. Maybe there's a, you know, John Lennon's imagined there's this world that we can live outside of these, these blocks. Um, but, of course, we know that that doesn't happen. So fla flash forward ahead, like what, what, what happens, you know, jump a few decades. Uh, you know, so they meet, they decide we're going we're gonna to maybe try to encourage other to be non-aligned. What, what's the path of Burma going forward? Uh, the path of Burma is different from the path of any of these major countries that were leading the non-line movement in the future, like Yugoslavia, India, Egypt, and others, because Burma was one of the pioneers of neutralism or non-alignment. It was one of the founding members of the, at the first conference. It was not movement at that time, but it was still kind right. of an initiative in Belgrade in 1961. But due to internal divisions, internal political problems, beca Burma became a self-isolated country in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And it was a member of the Nalai movement. It took part in many of the summits and, and major political initiatives. But, for example, it was the, f the first country which officially left the Nalai movement in 1979, protesting Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia and Laos. And then it returned in the 1990s, becoming again member of the Nalai movement. So it was also a specific case for Burmese foreign policy that it was the, the only country that left the movement, but it was also the country which went back uh, to the same movement, and it is a member until today, even though the movement, of course, lost its major political significance uh, after the end of the Cold War. But the whole concept of independent foreign policy and sovereignist foreign policy for the developing world, I think it's very much present in the minds of, of uh, third world politicians until today. Interesting. So tell us... It's it's time for some plugs now. Tell us tell us what you're working on. Tell us uh, what we should be reading. Uh, 
uh, what uh, what your research uh, we got coming up on the docket. So um, I'm doing research on all kinds of aspects of, of third world politics during the Cold War, non-alignment, China's foreign policy, Yugoslavia's foreign policy, that region. So I'm preparing a lot of books and, uh, and articles which will be forthcoming in the years to come and uh, you will be able to read them. Some of them you can find on online. For example, since we were talking about Burma, you can find... Uh, do, you a, do you have a website we could link to? Uh, I don't have a website, but you should go... I mean, your, your listeners should go to the Woodrow Wilson Center's uh, Cold War International okay. History Project. There is a big working paper which I wrote on Yugoslavia's arms shipments to Burma, mm -hmm. which was very interesting. It got a prize at the, a graduate student conference. We can put that Cold link War. up, yeah. Yes, and it's very interesting. It's a work which is very much quoted by uh, Burmese experts around the world. My works are uh, quoted by Professor Kenton Klamer, who is with us too today, and Robert Taylor, who is also a famous Burma specialist. For example, his new biography of Ne Win is uh, extensively quoting my, my works on Yugoslav-Burmese relations. Right, because there's all these archives that, uh, exactly. that you've given us so access to. Exactly, so I get a multiple yeah. perspective, which is interesting for me personally, and also, I think, interesting for other historians, too. This is a true example of international, uh, international history, uh, which uh, our profession as diplomatic historians has been encouraging for a long time, and this is certainly one of the best examples of it. Yes, but it yeah. needs time, of course. It needs the ability <laughs> yeah. to read in a couple of languages. Right. Right. Casually right. pick up <laughs> Casual pick. dozen travel, languages. Yeah. Travel, travel <laughs> to these <laughs> different countries, mm -hmm. stay there. But also it's a it's really ingratiating experience meeting so many different people, um, different cultures, traveling to different countries, cooperating with people, and of course presenting your own research to the international audience and publishing it. So I think it's a very nice experience, personal experience for It's for good myself. work if you can find it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, again, thank you for sharing your time with us, and we look forward to seeing what you're up to in the future. Thank you for having me here. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for production assistance and the Thai Steel Band for their music. Stay tuned for a full podcast with the Thai Steel Ensemble coming up.